I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 is one of those chapters in the Bible of great theological importance. Every chapter in the Bible is important. You should read every one of them. But some of them have a, a truth that really helps you understand a lot of the rest of them. Exodus 24 is one of those chapters that is crucial to our understanding of a large part of the Bible and a large part of theology. It is the chapter in which the covenant that God made with the Israelites was ratified, where it was confirmed. This um, chapter is of great importance and known that for quite some time, but as with every message that I would prepare, uh, there's always a desire to seek the Lord and um, for Him to grant understanding. That's a constant prayer. Oftentimes, that's a prayer right up until the moment that I get up to preach. Lord, give me understanding. Help me. Sometimes, you may be surprised how often it is, or maybe you won't be surprised and think, this is it. I knew this is the way it worked. I don't have it click until moments before or during the sermon. As we sang during the first service, uh, that last song, Your Will Be Done, was one of those moments where some of the truths of the passage just kind of coalesced to me. The, the theme of that song, of course, is the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. And in that prayer, it was kind of like the ultimate expression of submission. And submission, in a sense, is obedience. In that garden, the Son was completing the course of obedience that he had lived perfectly until that moment, and now is reaching its consummation as he goes to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, that place is the place where the new covenant is ratified. The new covenant is the covenant that we are a part of. We are not a part of the Mosaic or the old covenant. We are part of the new covenant. The Israelites, in this text, we'll see in Exodus 24, say several times, all that you have said, we will do. All that you have said, we will obey. And here's the problem. They didn't. Jesus, in that garden and at that cross, was obedient to the point of death. He did not stumble in a single point, and his obedience was perfected in that final moment when he went to the cross. He alone there was the one saying, all that you have said, I will do. That's kind of the conclusion to this message. 
And I give it to you now to keep in your minds as we go through this. And I do want to unpack what is here, but ultimately that's where we're getting to. Jesus Christ is the one who ushered in the new covenant. Yet Exodus 24 describes for us the events leading up to and then the ceremony that describes the ratification of that relationship between God and Israel to formalize it. And I want to read to you Exodus 24, verses 1 through 11. I know that your bulletin says 1 through 18, but as I looked at this text, I realized those really belong to the next section. So we'll just focus on 1 through 11 this morning. Let me read to you Exodus 24, beginning in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate, and drank. Let's bow together and pray. But Father, we thank you for your word which always instructs us. The Father, we ask you now that you would grant us an understanding of this passage, an understanding that would lead to trust, a trust that would be expressed in our worship. The Father, don't leave us unchanged as a result of this. Do not keep us, do not let us harden our hearts. Soften us to this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Israel and the Lord have a formalized relationship as a result of Exodus 24 and the events that happen in here. We, I think, understand that there are certain relationships just in our human life that require a, a formalization of them because they are so serious. They're not casual. They are something that is... Uh, requiring of us great responsibility. And I think most of all, or best of all, that's illustrated in marriage. Marriage is a relationship that doesn't come about by some just casual meeting where two people just suddenly start living together for the rest of their life. We know that it's a relationship that is of such seriousness that it requires some sort of 
ceremony or some sort of expression to say that we are formally committing to each other for the remainder of our lives till death do us part. You don't just kind of fall into it. Just about every culture has some cultural expression of how that uh, uh, relationship is solemnized. It could be in our culture, which I love the way it's traditionally done, where a bride dresses in white, reflecting purity, coming down the aisle to the groom who is waiting for her, and they clasp hands and they look at each other in the eye and say their vows to one another, expressing their love. And then it's formalized not just by the vows, but by the exchanging of a token, a ring that is worn on the finger to show they belong to each other. And from that moment on, it's no longer party A and party B. It is now something entirely new. Two people coming together as one. It's a wonderful and lovely picture. A marriage is a covenantal relationship. Something that is joined together by promise and by particular responsibilities held on both sides. And in order for it to keep going, both parties need to keep what they vowed at that wedding ceremony. It's a bilateral relationship. That's not the romantic terminology for it, but it's the truth of it. Both parties have a responsibility, and if they fail, then that could lead to the end of that relationship. And that's what we see here, in a sense, where both parties, God and Israel, have an expression to some degree of what they are pledging to one another. There are other covenant relationships in Scripture that are uh, ceremonially inaugurated or ratified. Most notably, perhaps, would be the Abrahamic covenant, where God has promised to Abraham that he would give to his descendants uh, a land and a seed. And so in that promise, God formalizes that relationship between God and Abraham and his descendants. It's found in Genesis 15, verses 7 through 12, and beyond that, and you can look there at another time. But if you've read that, you know that the Lord brings together a ceremony that is going to effectively ratify or confirm that relationship. God tells Abraham, take some animals, sacrifice them, lay them uh, across each other, uh, and cut them in half and kind of create an alleyway to go through, and Abraham does that. And this is a way to show that this is a, a serious relationship because death has come and it's basically saying if you don't keep your end, then this is what will happen to you. But here's the next thing. After Abraham has done that, God puts Abraham to sleep. And then God manifests in this smoking pot, this flaming kind of fire pot, passes between those two pieces expressing that he is going to keep his promise. And it says in Genesis 15, 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river to the river Euphrates. God passes through, but what's Abraham doing? He's snoring. So who's responsible for keeping that relationship going? God takes all responsibility on himself for the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham's asleep. 
And God ratifies the covenant. This Mosaic covenant is different. It's different in the sense that Israel is pledging during the ceremony what they will do. It's a big deal. And as they do that, they take a big responsibility on their shoulders. They did not sleep through it. We have to understand again, we are not a part of the Mosaic Covenant. We are a part of the New Covenant. God relates to his people through covenants. You have to relate to them through some sort of covenant. But do you know which one you're a part of? Do you have and do you know of a formalized relationship between you and the Lord? And if so, how has that happened? And how have you come into that relationship? It's not through what Israel goes through here. This is a different scenario, and we have to understand the distinctions. And yet, as we go through this, there are still important lessons for us. We have to understand here, as we see how this covenant is ratified, I trust that we will see some very important truths come through this. So I want to spend the remainder of our time unpacking the ratification of this covenant. It really happens in three events. The first event is preparation for after the covenant is ratified. The second event is the actual ceremony that ratifies the covenant. And then the third is the worship that comes as a result of the ratification of the covenant. So the first event that we see here is that in preparation for the seriousness of the occasion, God prepares people to worship him. It's as if God is showing here in verses 1 and 2 as he calls Moses uh, to come up to the Lord along with others in order to worship. It's as if he's saying that this ratification of the covenant is, is so important and it's really so important because it leads to what comes next. It leads to worship. God is preparing for what the ratification and what this relationship will ultimately be about which is worship. The Lord again says there in verse 1, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. The summons to worship, it could be quite literally put, to bow down. That's what God is telling them to do. It is to prostrate themselves before the greatness of God quite literally bowing oneself to the ground. It's a sign of respect, a sign of reverence, a sign of adoration. And it's a completely appropriate scenario because they are going into the presence of a king after all. Even in our societies, if you happen to, for some reason, enter into the presence of someone who sits on a throne as their job, you would suddenly start thinking, how am I going to dress? How am I going to present myself as I go into the room? What am I going to say to them? You're not likely going to casually stroll into the room, slap them on the back, and say, what's up? It's not the way you treat a king. So, God is a king. How do we treat him? But God's after more than just the externals. He is after the heart. 
He's after a heart that bows down before him, a heart that reveres him as the God who made heaven and earth. He is the one who also rescued Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so as they come into his presence, of course, the only proper display of their respect for him is to bow themselves down before him, acknowledge his greatness. How could they not bow down before him? And yet, this call to worship, I think, is interestingly given by the one who is to be worshipped. The Lord is the one who says, come and worship. Every Sunday morning, I issue a call to worship as we stand and prepare our hearts to sing to the Lord. But as I give that call to worship, I am not giving a call to worship any human being in this room. We're called to worship our great God. Yet the scenario here is a little bit different because God himself is issuing the call to worship God himself. Now we know for us that worship is a duty, something we're obligated to do, but it's more than that. It's a joy. It's a privilege. And it's amazing that God himself welcomes us to come and worship him. But if you think about this for the moment, you could could come to some wrong conclusions. You could think that this sounds an awful lot like someone saying, well, you have the duty. No, not just the duty, but the privilege. No, not just the privilege, but the joy of coming and telling me how great I am. If a person did that to you, you would find it a privilege to tell them some things, but not how great they are. But God, come and worship. What's the difference? How is this not just a, an egomaniac getting the full big head? What's the difference? Well, there's a couple of very important differences, aren't there? Well, the first difference is that if a person comes to you and tells you that you need to praise them, they don't deserve it. They do not deserve it because no matter how good they are at whatever they do, they are always derivative. Their talents, their skills are always derivative. But God is always original. God is not derivative. He is of himself. He is who he is and no one made him and there is no one else like him. He is absolutely deserving of whatever praise we can give him because he is who he is and he has done what he has done and no one has helped him. So that's the first and key difference. Another difference is that the person who would tell you, come and praise me, is not likely bent on doing good to you. That's not their intention. They request that in order to feel better about themselves, to make their ego bigger. But here's one of the grand attributes of our God. He is self-sufficient. That means he does not need anything outside of himself. 
For all eternity, our triune God existed in perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Spirit, without need for anyone or anything else, with perfect love, perfect contentment. For all eternity past, they lived in that state, and they lacked nothing. And so when God decided to create the world and all that is in it, he did not need to do it out of some lack in himself. He rather did it out of the overflow of who he is. And so this world and all the people in it cannot add one drop of essence to who our God is. He needs nothing. And so although he created us, he does not need our worship to be better than he is. So then why does he call us to worship? It's not ultimately, in a sense, for his benefit in that he needs anything. But rather, I think this is another expression of his grace to us. Because as he built us, as he made us, he made us to be worshipers so that ourselves and the wholeness of who we would be would not be complete without exerting and sending worship to the great God who made us. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need your donations. His streets are paved with gold. But what does he need? He has no need. So that the worship that he has commanded of us is not ultimately for his good in it, that it benefits him, but rather it benefits us in some way. That's not to say that worship is about us. It's not. But isn't it? For people who know and love God, the greatest joy that you have, the greatest fulfillment that you find, don't you find it in worship of your God? If you find it anywhere else, then you're looking at things that are too small. Isn't it the case that when you look at the world that he has made and the beauty that he's put into it, don't you look at that and you marvel and you want to say, great are your works, O Lord. And isn't that a joyful expression of your heart? It's become a bit of a catechism in our own home that when we look out and see a beautiful sunrise, which is not too often, we more see sunsets. And we look at that and we see the beautiful sunset that comes across the sky. And we love it and love the colors and love the beauty. But the sentence isn't finished. There is no period to the sentence until we say, thank you. We look at the, sun at the sunset and we say to our kids, didn't God do a good job? Yes, he did. You can look at the sunset, it's beautiful. But your sentence isn't complete until you say, well done. And don't we have it in us that our praise goes beyond just what he has made in the world? Don't we look at our God and we say, great are you, Lord, because you've looked on me, a wretch, and you've rescued me by the blood of your son, and you've welcomed me into your presence. And we don't just end with contentment that we are forgiven. We just, just end with contentment that we have eternal life. It, the sentences are finished. The period isn't placed until we say, thank you, praise your name for what he has done for us. And so as God calls his people ultimately to worship as the consummation of this covenant relationship, 
We understand it is not so an egomaniac, it's a bigger ego. It is rather so that we would have the joy of this relationship expressed in our worship. So, we worship him. That's the culmination of the ratification of a covenant. But notice here that this worship and this call to worship given is only given to an exclusive group. It's given to representatives. It's Moses and his brother Aaron and his sons Nadab and Abihu who will be priests and then 70 of the elders of Israel, leaders of the people. And it shows that in the forming of this covenant, there is a mediation that is happening. Not everyone of the population of Israel is welcome to come closer and worship God in the same way that these people will get the opportunity to do. Although God is bringing people to himself, there's still this kind of remoteness about the situation. And if you were among the Israelites not chosen to go up on that mountain, you might think, what's the deal? Am I not good enough? But if you remember, back in chapter 19, when God began to speak, actually chapter 20, after God began to speak to the people of Israel, they said to Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us anymore. Or we're going to die. And so the 70 may have been thinking, oh, great, why did I get chosen? There's this remoteness still. Not everyone gets to go. One of the features of distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and we saw this last week in the book of Jeremiah, is that in the New Covenant, there will be no need to tell people, know the Lord, for they will all know him. That means that all the people who actually belong to the New Covenant really know him. Whereas in this Old Covenant, it was built on ancestry. You were born into it. You didn't really have a choice, in a sense. Israelites by ancestry. And so they were brought into that relationship because of the family they were born into. And I think that's on display here. Not everyone there knows the Lord. Not everyone is welcome to the worship. All are obligated to the covenant, but not all enjoy the access to worship. That remoteness is expressed not just in the exclusive nature of who gets to go, but in verse 2 it says, Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. There's a tiered structure here, three levels going on. The people don't get up to go to the mountain at all. Only a few get to go on the mountain, and only Moses gets to go all the way up. And this shows that although God came down to the mountain and manifests his glory there, and it seems like he's so close, there's still a gap. There's still a gap, and no matter how hard they try, you cannot get there unless invited. If you wanted access into the very presence of God, then you would need to be attached in some way to the mediator who gets to go into his presence, to Moses alone. Moses was the only one who got to go up into the very presence there at the top of the mountain. Moses was just a mere man, and as you read through these chapters of Exodus, you realize that he's going up and down the mountain, back and forth, to God, to the people, from the people to God, from God to the people, back and forth, up and down. 
It would have been exhausting for him as he represented God to the people and people to their God. We have a mediator too, don't we? And he's greater than Moses. And he doesn't go back and forth and up and down, but he is Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God who eternally existed before he took on flesh and then he dwelt among us. And there he doesn't go up and down and back and forth. He is there with us because he is God himself in our presence and dwelt among us. There is some back and forth. He went back into heaven and he's going to come back for his own, but different than Moses. And not only that, not only has the Son of God come to be with us, but he has sent his spirit and put him in our hearts. The very presence of God with us wherever we go. That's the call to worship. The worship that will consummate the ratification of this covenant. The second event is this ceremony that confirms the covenant. The instructions for worship are given. And now Moses comes down the mountain, verse 3, and talks to all of the people. And there's specific stages in this Ceremony that confirms the covenant. Covenant. First, there are the preliminary stages where some things are arranged, and then there's the actual ceremony itself, and then there's what happens after the ceremony, namely worship. These preliminary actions are really essential to preparation for the ratification ceremony. And we see first what Moses does is he comes and he speaks to the people. Notice there in verse 3, he came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. He doesn't hold anything back. All that we've just seen in chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, those rules, those laws, he explains or tells to the people. And then the people hear that and they say, all the words of the, that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They agree to it. They say we're on board. And really there's no other response, is there? There's no other response that they could have given or should have given. They had to. God is their king. They have to obey him. That's a non-negotiable. And by the way, though we are in the new covenant, obedience likewise is not optional. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Observe all that I have commanded you. That's a new covenant instruction. That is not optional. So the people get on board. And then in verse 4, Moses writes down all the words of the Lord. It's as if the terms are set. There it is. No negotiations. It's written. Can't go back, make amendments, scratch some things out you don't like. They are written. And then Moses prepares an altar and around it 12 pillars. The altar is really the, the representative place of God's presence. It's where the sacrifices will be offered and it's representing God's presence in this ceremony to come. The pillars around it represent the 12 tribes. The pillars are not idolatrous because they represent people, and so it's not that they would be leading them to idolatry. 
But it shows that there are these important entities in the covenant, the two important entities, Israel and God, the altar and the pillars. And then the last preliminary action is that these young men, likely the firstborns who are precursors to the priest, offer sacrifices. A whole burnt offering, which is representative of complete dedication to God, and a peace offering, which reflects harmony and reconciliation between God and man. And then comes the actual ceremony of covenant ratification. And you'll see it progresses in three phases, in verse 6, 7, and 8, marked by the repetitive phrase, and Moses took. In verse 6, and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw on the, against the altar. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. In verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Three phases of this ceremony. Moses took the blood of the sacrifices, half went into these basins or bowls, and then half he threw against the altar. Notice that's the first step in this ceremony. A sacrificial animal, a substitute, was slain. The blood gathered and thrown against the altar. And this shows that first, before any relationship with God is established, God has to be propitiated. God has to be satisfied. Because we are sinners, and if we come into his presence with our sin, we will be consumed. And the only solution to that is that there would be something that would be in our place between us and God. In this case, it was an animal who lost its life and blood splattered against the altar to show that God accepted that animal in the place of the death that should have come to the people. And so God, first of all, is satisfied. He is propitiated. That's first because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And who can come into God's presence unless they are forgiven? The second phase of this ceremony is that Moses then took the book of the covenant and read it. And you think, well, isn't, didn't he just do that? Didn't he just tell them everything? It's like, well, yeah, but that was yesterday. Do you know how much you lose in 24 hours? This, by the way, is a great exhortation, just as an aside, that you need to be reading your Bible like, all the time. Be familiar with it. Let it dwell in you richly. And so Moses reads it again, lest there be any mistaking about what the terms of the covenant are. When he reads the words to them, none of them could claim that they didn't understand what was expected of them. And so now the people state in a formal way, during the ceremony, verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Basically, they are agreeing, Yahweh is our king, and we will do as he says. And then the last component of this ceremony as Moses takes the blood, in verse 8, and threw it on the people. You might think, yeah, glad I wasn't there. But in another sense, 
you can consider just how profound an experience that would be for those who were there. To have watched an animal sacrifice, the blood taken and thrown against the altar, satisfying God, and then the other half of that blood, after agreeing to the covenant terms, being now thrown on you. And you think, this is serious. God means business. But not only that, even more profoundly, that animal was the means by which God's wrath was propitiated and satisfied so he did not strike out against the people being too close to him. And that blood now covers them and it would feel as if it was a layer of protection between them and their God. And it would be a realization that they are welcome to God but only through sacrifice. Later on in Exodus chapter 29, Aaron and his sons have a ceremony that is performed on them. There's a sacrifice made, and blood from that sacrifice is placed on very particular parts of their body, and it's also sprinkled on the altar. And this was to show that Aaron and his sons were set apart now as priests. They belong to God in a very unique and peculiar way. Well, the people are effectively having that done to them now. Because remember when God begins this whole thing in Exodus 19, he says in Exodus 19, 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this ceremony visibly sets them apart. Moses says, after he throws the blood on them, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And with that, the covenant is ratified. It is now in effect. And it means that now, although God is king everywhere, Israel now has him as their king in a very specific way. God, in a sense, is not the king of Egypt in the same way he is the king of Israel. He's not the king of the Canaanites in the same way as the king of Israel. Israel now has his protection, his provision, his laws. He defines their way of living and gives them their land. And Israel is the people of God at this point in a way that Egypt is not, in a way the Canaanites are not, because they have sworn basically under oath and sealed with blood that they will do what God has commanded them. Covenant is ratified. I'm struck by how similar in a way and yet how very different the new covenant ratification is. The people there at the foot of Mount Sinai say, all that he says we will do. Jesus alone in the Garden of Gethsemane bows in the excruciating agony of prayer, knowing where obedience is going to lead him, and cries out, not my will, but yours be done. And then from there, he gets up and goes, and Judas betrays him, his disciples flee, and he begins on the course of action to Calvary, completely alone. And then he goes to the cross, where his enemies surround him, where people mock him, and where his father now comes in darkness and dwells above him. 
executing his wrath against him. And even there, Jesus, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, fulfills all that his father set out for him to do. He alone and no other did that at the cross. And so when the new covenant is ratified, the perfect obedience required by God's standard is fulfilled in Christ alone. And the only access that anyone in the world has to the Father, God Almighty, is through that mediator, Jesus Christ. That's it. Because why? Because he did it all. He obeyed to the very last moment. Jesus, before he went to Gethsemane, had that meal where he transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. And he had his disciples there with him, and they shared that meal. And in Matthew 26, 28, as the cup was given, Jesus said this, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood, not an animal, not a bull, not a sheep, but the Son of God. In Hebrews 9, verse 19 through 28, hear this. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, and in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Praise the Lord Jesus. He is our mediator. Jesus alone, the substitutionary sacrifice who was obedient to the point of death, ushered in that new covenant. The third event here, very, very briefly, that happens after that ceremony is the worship that was prepared to happen now happens. In verse 9, it says that that crew that was talked about earlier went up and they saw the God of Israel. The culmination of the covenant is fellowship with God, to be brought to Him. This is what comes about here at the end. God has opened a door, and it says that they saw God. It's kind of a strange thing to say when we understand in Exodus 33:20, where it says, you cannot see my face, 
For man shall not see me and live. You get the sense, don't you, as you read this, that the door that God opened to allow these people to see him was open just a crack. They're just looking through. And what do they see? Well, the only thing that they see that's described here is what's under the feet of God. And they see him, yes, temporarily, but intentionally revealed. It's a curious thing. That's what they see under his feet is this pavement of sapphire. But still it says they saw God. I think of a bit like a, a man walking the jungles of India. And um, he says to his companion, I saw a tiger. And his companion says, oh, did you, did you see his eyes? And the man says, no, if I saw his eyes, that's the last thing I ever would have seen. He says, well, did you see his, his fangs? He says, no, if that's the last thing I ever I saw, that would be the last thing I would ever see in my life. Well, did you see the sharp claws? The man says, no, if I saw those, that would have been the last thing I ever saw. Well, what did you see? I saw this stripe of orange and a stripe of black and a stripe of orange that looked like it was at the tip of a tail. But I saw a tiger. <laughs> they see what's under the feet of God. And they beheld God. And it is so powerful, so awesome, that the next statement has to be this. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Like we have to know, just clarified for us, that in that moment their lives were on the line, but God did not reach out and strike them. He withheld. Why? Because of the grace exercised through the sacrifice. He withheld his hand. Though he dwells there, whereas pavement under his feet is like the heaven for clearness and purity, he did not strike out against sinners. And what did they do? They beheld God, it says. And they ate. And they drank. Something very normal, in a sense. But extraordinary. There, in the presence of God, they shared a meal. They had fellowship with God, expressed in food and drink. Not that God was eating and drinking, but they were doing that in His presence. There are a few things more friendly, more intimate, more social, more personal than sharing a meal with someone. And God allowed it as an expression of their worship to him. They feasted and worshiped God. We have the opportunity to not partake of that meal, but one even better, the meal that the Lord Jesus has given to us, the Lord's Supper, a reflection of the fellowship that Christ himself has purchased for us so that we can have fellowship with God through his sacrifice on the cross. We eat the bread and we drink the juice. We do it with joy, we do it in commemoration, and we do it because God has welcomed us into his presence through his Son.
who was obedient to the point of death. Pray, and then we'll have the chance to take communion together. Father, we thank you that you, through your Son, have ushered in this new covenant that your people receive by faith and new birth. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us this expression of communion to reflect the fellowship that we have with one another because of the fellowship we have with you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to the cross, dying for us and being obedient for us. May you be glorified now as we remember you. Amen.